Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on iTunes, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Kate Moore is kind enough to join us here uh, at the Park Hyatt in Midtown Manhattan. She's Chief Equity Strategist at BlackRock. Good morning. Thanks for being here. Good morning. Let's uh, let's begin keeping in spirit uh, the spirit of the event here, looking ahead to 2017, forecast out a bit. What are you expecting? I guess I should ask principally if a rate hike will have happened by then. You know, our expectation is the Fed will move in December and we'll get some good signaling on that uh, next week. Like, you know, from the perspective of both the labor markets as well as inflation, we're definitely in, a, in an environment where normalization is warranted. And so I want to sort of distinguish between normalization and hiking, right? Because we think we're going to normalize a little bit further next year. Um, But even with a little bit of normalization and hopefully a small reduction in uncertainty coming from the election, uh, we think this is going to be a a kind of a more low growth, low return next 12 to 18 months uh, in across all asset markets, but that equities will, will provide better returns. I'm not just saying that because I am an equity strategist, but simply because the bond math is really challenged, we think, next year. When you talk about the uncertainty of the election, how do you measure that? Uh, and, and how uncertain is the uncertainty right now? So you, we look back at all these uh, previous presidential election cycles, and you, you know you have a similar pattern in the third quarter, uh, a slowdown in terms of CapEx intentions from an investor's perspective, uh, raising cash balances. You also see, uh, you know, uh, redemptions from equity funds. This is all kind of a traditional pattern. All of that feels like it's accelerated in this cycle. The uncertainty level is much higher. And in fact, we've seen a pullback in terms of investment and um, guidance in term, as we've been going through third quarter earnings season and actually an increased number of people increasing their uh, cash levels across their both institutional and individual uh, portfolios. So this is, this is a, I think, a, a tough time for people to be taking risk because there's so much uncertainty, even with what policy will look like next year. And uh, it's, everyone's in a wait-and-see mode. That might mean, actually, that the markets grind a little bit higher. Talking with Kate Moore uh, of BlackRock. Here we are in the middle of earnings season, more than in the middle, I suppose, four-fifths of the, of the way through. How catalytic has this earnings season been so far? We were looking for a catalyst. There was some talk of earnings season being that catalyst. Uh, not yet, it seems. I don't think so. I don't think earnings themselves can be the catalyst at this point. You know, we need a uh, solid set of beats. We're already on track to get there, but off of very, very lowered expectations, especially since the beginning of this year. And, uh, you know, I think we need not just earnings beats, but also actually um, sales beats. Revenues have to look a lot better. But that's required. I, I think what really catalyzes the market um, you know, our market rally into year-end and gets more investors to participate is going to be more certainty around the politics and around monetary policy and a better picture of kind of what growth might look like in 2017. You know, um, 
no one's expecting a, a double-digit earnings year or double-digit earnings quarter. That would be you know, a positive surprise, but it has to be sustainable. And uh, we just put a very low probability on that type of event. So earnings necessary but not sufficient to really you know, cause a next big up leg in the market. There are seasons within, within the season. We had U.S. banks reporting last week and the week before that, many of them Great uh, news. surprising analysts. Yep. Uh, what's your takeaway from that when you look at, at U.S. financials in particular? Look, we've been doing a lot of work actually on global banks and comparing U.S. versus European versus Japanese versus Chinese banks because banks, of course, have been the sector uh, that everyone has loved to hate, whether it's because of, um, you know, rate expectations or because of regulation or because of changing capital requirements. You know, this has just been a a focal point for a lot of investors. And we think really the sector that's funded uh, overweights in some, um, you know, either dividend paying or technology kind of stocks. I think we're at an interesting inflection point when it comes to U.S. banks, probably not quite so in, in Europe and Japan or, say, China, uh, where balance sheets look really good. Uh, the restructuring is largely done. We really think that we've passed peak regulation, not that regulation is going away, but we've passed peak regulation, and that banks are being really prudent um, about their business models. And, so, you know, so you're not looking at it as an anomalous quarter. Uh, no. You look at the cost cutting, you look at where things are, and, and it's anticipate that's going to carry over into future quarters. It, it feels pretty good. And I would also say, you know, while we may not have a huge amount of additional um, cash return to shareholders from the sector, it will increase somewhat. And I think that higher dividend payment will will attract investors who are thinking about income in this lower return environment. So uh, it's a it's an interesting place for people to reallocate. I would note that the, the outperformance we've seen recently, and of course, uh, financials have been the sector that have outperformed um, or at least posted very solid positive returns over the last month. Uh, has come on the back of higher inflation expectations. So rising inflation expectations, I think, are key to, to sustainability. Um, this is a lot about sentiment. Even if I said just a moment ago, all the fundamentals already look pretty good. Um, today, Apple reports. Later in the week, Alphabet reports. What's the, the, the role uh, in the equity space as a whole of those companies today? Uh, Apple, of course, still still huge. Alphabet as well. But what, what, what do they tell you about the health of, of the market when they report? I would argue that in each of those cases, they are special examples mm. with very unique business models and you know a huge amount of market share. And um, I think that they are important for people to feel comfortable about what's happening in terms of consumption and, and whether or not these companies are you know really targeting the right types of businesses to to capture um, what is a very competitive uh, consumer. But. I think we need greater breadth in the tech sector to to really say this is a sustainable trend and not just a, a story of a couple of the biggest companies who are already the behemoths. Um, we'd also be looking at semis, for example, within tech. I think that's going to be interesting. And I think I would also be looking at uh, some of the hardware companies um, to, to really give us, give us a sense if there's an investment cycle. So you're enthusiastic about tech right now. Yeah, tech, tech M- looks... Muted enthusiasm. Oh, Everything is sort of muted right yeah. now, isn't it? I mean, we, we all have to be sort of uh, under this cloud of uncertainty uh, when it comes to the politics and policy. But it certainly looks like tech relative to other sectors is it has a much stronger secular growth trend. You mentioned you're looking at, at banks uh, globally. Mm-hmm. Uh, how concerned are you about what's happening in Europe and how confined to Europe do you think that situation is? You mentioned the, the state of regulation here in the U.S. It's not over, but perhaps more established than it is in, yeah. in Europe. 
the European banks are a very specific situation. Like we, I mentioned when I was talking about U.S. banks, we think we're past peak regulation. We certainly don't think that's the case with Europe. And Basel IV is going to uh, change the game in terms of capital requirements for a lot of these banks. But they also haven't done something that the U.S. banks did, which was significantly reform their businesses. You know, we've been talking about this for a while, uh, selling assets, really thinking about, you know, Uh, what is the right mix of businesses to have going forward. And these big changes haven't happened. I think they're upcoming, and that will change the earnings prospects um, for these companies. Plus, the profitability has been killed, right, from monetary policy. It's not just keeping rates low, but negative interest rate policy has made it really, really difficult to earn money. And uh, return on equity and return on assets in Europe looks particularly weak. And so unless there's a a change in monetary policy stance and you get kind of like that pivot from the ECB where we actually say we're going to, you know, be tweaking the policy because we understand the pain this is inflicting on the system just at a time when they need to restructure and raise capital, it's hard for us to get excited. And uh, there may be sort of a a rent opportunity here and there because it's such an under-owned sector uh, or a trade, but as in terms of investment, uh, the fundamentals just aren't there for us. You're going to stay with us for another block, but let me ask you quickly about the, the role of the strong dollar mm. uh, right now. I mentioned it's around uh, 98, 747 dollar spot. Um, is that going to continue? How long do you forecast the dollar being as strong as it has been? The dollar has rallied, you know, uh, more recently, but you know, our medium-term view is that the dollar is going to be kind of range-bound. We're not looking for the same kind of appreciation we saw in 2014 and 2015, and that's a really good thing. The dollar can grind higher a little bit on some divergent monetary policy and slightly better U.S. growth prospects, but a hugely stronger dollar is not good for earnings, and it is really not constructive for any country or any market in the world. So I think there's an acknowledgement uh, by the Fed that this is an important consideration in, in making their decision at this point. And uh, we don't think that we're going to have such a, um, explosive growth in the U.S. that there will be a, a huge rally. This is David Gurr with Tom Keene at the Park Hyatt in Midtown Manhattan for the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit. Kate Moore joins us. She is chief equity strategist uh, at BlackRock. We were talking a bit about the dollar. I want to ask you about the Fed. Uh, and how you game out what happens in the markets when the Fed raises rates, be that in November, December, or beyond that still. Uh, How's the market going to react? How do you forecast that? Look, if the market, and I'd say this in particular, if equities, you know, um, act like they're surprised and something is terribly, terribly wrong, uh, we've been waiting for this for, you know, some time, what will be probably 12 months for the next step in normalization. And, you know, one of the studies that we've done is looked at the composition of corporate balance sheets today versus where they were 10 years ago pre-crisis and and looked at the composition in particular of um, floating rate debt versus fixed rate. And no surprise to anyone, the percentage of fixed rate debt has gone up dramatically. Uh, So companies should not really uh, be terribly sensitive to slightly higher rates. It's not like everything's going to reset. In fact, they've termed out their debt. They've locked in these rates, much as we all have done with our mortgages. Uh, So slightly higher policy rates should not have an impact on margins. And so, you know, if the equity market behaves unfavorably, it would be somewhat confusing. There was a note out yesterday from Torsten Slock at at Deutsche Bank. He often looks at the Fed minutes and, and literally counts words that appear in them. So he looks for financial stability and financial instability over the last many meetings. Right. And in the last minutes from the September meeting, uh, neither phrase appeared in the minutes. Is this a Fed that is not concerned about financial stability or uh, is beyond the point of having to be concerned about it? It's a, I saw Torsen's note yesterday, so I know exactly what you're referring to. I think it's, it's interesting. And 
I would just caution us from obsessing too much sure. about every single word that comes out of a, a Fed speaker's mouth. I mean, that is the way that we've been operating for the last couple of years. The new normal. And I will fully admit that in September of 2015, uh, when Yellen at the press conference started discussing the concerns around global financial conditions, I thought this is a bit of a game changer. This is not just about employment uh, or about inflation, but about what could happen in every other market. So I understand why we're, we're looking at words and phrases. I think we all know that financial conditions are part of the, the Fed's dashboard at this point. And, and uh, you know, it, it feels to me like we're in a more stable backdrop than we were uh, 12 months ago uh, in terms of global growth. And it's not accelerating, but it's certainly, I think, the, the risks to the downside are a little bit lower. Tom Keane, making his way here from Bloomberg World Headquarters. Did you walk? I, no, I took, this, uh, I took the Sikorsky helicopter. <laughs> All the well, way down 57th Street. Well, fancy place like Park Hyatt. They yes, they have, a, they have a on the roof. Volmer, exactly. we sound okay over there? Yep, you're the Thumbs biologist. up. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> David Gurr and Tom Keane with Kate Moore. We're here at our Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit. Kate, we were talking earlier about the challenge down the income statement for big multinationals. Part of the challenge down the income statement is obscure adjustments at the bottom for currency. Mm-hmm. Is that going to be an issue for U.S. multinationals? I think if we think about the start of 2016, one of the great hopes in terms of earnings this year was that the dollar would no longer be a significant headwind yeah. for the global multinationals. And you're seeing a little bit of that in the third quarter earnings reported so far, but I think the fourth quarter will be really the tell. You know, it takes a few quarters for the for the currency change to really play through. Look, I have to tell you, I mean, it's I mentioned before that our expectations of the dollar will be somewhat range-bound, but from the earnings perspective of the global multinationals, you know, a significantly appreciating yeah. dollar has been a challenge and would be a challenge. Um, it would cause them to rethink some of their businesses and where they're investing. Yeah. Cubs or Indians? <laughs> I'm going to go with Cubs. Cubs? Uh, having done my grad's work in Chicago. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You know, albeit on the south side, um, I nevertheless have an affection for Chicago. I need to, yeah. I need to support. I got to go with Indians. You are. I, I mean, I, I'm in therapy over the Red Sox, and <laughs> my, my psychiatrist said, go with the Indians and root for Terry. There you go. But um, it's fast. I thought the New York Post nailed it today. What did it say? I didn't see it yet. One of these teams has to, you know, has to lose. Or, I can't remember exactly what they said. but well, It's historic It was way. that whole negativity that surrounds both franchises. That somebody will lose. <laughs> Kate Moore, it's a thank binary you so thing. much for the year ahead. And Kate Moore with some enthusiasm on equities. It's a pleasure here to be joined by Mohammed El Arian, a columnist for Bloomberg View, of course, and chief economic advisor with Allianz. Mohammed, great to speak with you. Good morning. Good morning, David. Great to catch you here before you catch a plane up to New York for the summit. I know you'll be speaking here uh, this afternoon. Let me start with China, the subject of your most recent piece for Bloomberg View. Looking here uh, at the offshore UN, we see it at 677.67. We've seen it plumbing lows, six-year lows, as a matter of fact. Give us your take on that, your your sense of why that's happening, and uh, the degree to which the government, the Chinese government, is going to allow this to keep happening. 
So I think the Chinese government is tolerating it. It has had a policy to encourage the depreciation of its currency when financial markets are calm. And financial markets are relatively calm right now, so they are taking advantage of it. More generally, we're seeing a broad phenomena of dollar strengthening. And I think the most striking thing is that this time around, compared to nine months ago, this time around, the U.S. equity market is taking this very calmly. And that's good news. Mohammed, we've been talking an awful lot about the, the trade picture globally. And, uh, of course, here in the U.S., the conversation continues about whether or not Congress will take up the Trans-Pacific Partnership in a lame duck session uh, before the, the January 20th uh, inauguration. How is China looking at that conversation? We, we hear a lot about the geopolitical argument for passing the, the TPP. What, what is China doing as it, as it looks at the U.S. Congress here, wrestling over so much it is wrestling over the, that piece of legislation? I think whether it's China or Europe, um, or even here in the U.S., everybody agrees with what you said a few minutes ago, which is that politics is now driving economics. And it's very different from what we've had in the past. In the past, economics had a major influence on politics. These days around, it's the, it's the other way around. Um, so the politics of globalization, the politics of trade agreements has become very complicated. And because of that, we are in this funny phase of anti-globalization. Um, and it will continue as long as populism is on the rise. Good morning, everyone. Here we're here at a year-ahead summit. Mohamed Alarian with us. And he will, of course, speak today at the summit. Uh, Dr. Alarian, uh, when I look at Stanley Fisher's speech the other day, which I thought was arguably the best speech I've ever heard at the Economic Club in New York. He really laid out this mystery of the real economy, something you have spoken about for years. The summation is we're exhausted with our processes, our strategies, and we need to find the courage and the will to do other things. Where will that courage come from? Yeah, like you, I thought that Vice Chair Fisher's speech was, was brilliant. Um, and it spoke to puzzles that have to do with investment, with productivity, and this notion that we have to think differently. Um, most economists agree that a prerequisite for this is going beyond central banks, is stopping to rely on central banks to do it all, um, to provide employment, to provide financial stability. They simply don't have the tools to carry such a heavy burden. So the first, the first critical thing, necessary, if there's a question mark whether it's sufficient, but certainly necessary, is to pivot away from prolonged over-reliance on central banks towards a much broader policy response. And the good news is that most economists agree on what that more, more comprehensive policy response should look like. You've talked about uh, the need here, the, the messiness of politics and how that's playing out in, in, in the international economy. When you look ahead to, to no, November 8th, no matter who wins, uh, how do you clean up that mess? How do you begin to, to right the ship after this uh, very long campaign we've had, very contentious campaign we've had? It's going to be hard because whoever wins, and it increasingly looks like Secretary Clinton will be the winner, has to acknowledge that there's anger. Um, and it doesn't surprise me, David, and, and Tom and I have talked about this a lot. When you run sophisticated market-based economies at low speed, at low growth for a long time, things start to break. And we're seeing this on the economic front with productivity and corporate investment. We're seeing it on the financial front with what ultra-low and negative interest rates are doing to the financial system. And we're seeing it in politics with the what I call the politics of anger, where people are single-issue driven. 
um, and we saw it in Brexit as an example. <coughs> so whoever comes right. um, to the White House and w- whatever the final configuration of Congress ends up to be, it's going to be very important to recognize that we cannot continue in this low growth equilibrium and not expect things to break. Um, well, Howard, I'm loving the new foreign affairs issue on populism, which you just touched upon. Fareed Zakaria talks about the simple idea that this is a culture war. Are the elections of Europe, like in the United States, what Zakaria talks of, are they cultural in nature and there's really not much else to talk about? Yeah, I think the most interesting thing in Europe is that the anti-establishment movements don't have to gain power in order to change the politics. We would not have had Brexit had Cameron not promised it during the election. He wouldn't have promised a referendum during the election had he not been worried about his base being taken by UKIP. So at the end of the day, a tiny party that got one seat in parliament defined the overall agenda and defined it in a meaningful way. So I think we have to pay attention to the influence of the anti-establishment parties, and you see them throughout Europe. Dr. Alarian, thank you so much. Mohamed Alarian, of course, writing often for Bloomberg View. and See you shortly. He'll be here yes, shortly, exactly. right? He's taking this, of course. <laughs> You're going to let him use it. Very good. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? They see their role is to serve, not sell. That's why Charles Schwab is committed to the success of over 7,000 independent financial advisors who passionately dedicate themselves to helping people achieve their financial goals. Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com. David Gura here with Tom Keen at the Bloomberg Year Ahead Summit at the Park Hyatt in Midtown mm-hmm. Manhattan. Hacking has been a big story here, a very big story for these last few months. There was the news, of course, that 500 million users' data had been breached uh, at Yahoo, and of course the involvement of hackers in the U.S. presidential election. Great cause to talk with Michael Chertoff, former Secretary of the U.S. Department of Homeland Security, Senior of Counsel at Covington and Burling, and founder and executive chairman of the Chertoff Group. Let's start with the Yahoo breach. Good morning, sure. first of all. Good morning. Uh, What's your takeaway from a corporate perspective uh, and from a cybersecurity perspective when you look at that Yahoo breach? Again, it happened many months ago. The company didn't acknowledge it until uh, this deal was hashed with with Verizon. How is it handled on the corporate side? How big a deal is it on the cybersecurity side? Well, first of all, it's not the first time we've seen a major hack on a commercial company uh, that reveals the importance of cybersecurity. We saw it back in Target. We've seen it with Anthem. We've seen it with a whole host of other companies. Obviously, the scale of 500 million accounts Uh, catches your attention. But beyond that, I think the failure to disclose this uh, is going to have a real impact on the terms and conditions of the acquisition. And I think it's a wake-up call for directors that this is as important to you as the core financial reporting that you do. You heard from executives when you were the head of Homeland Security. You work with executives now in in your law practice and your consulting practice. Do they need to talk to each other more? In other words, if there's a breach like this, would another company benefit, not in a competitive way, 
but would it benefit in knowing what hackers are doing, where they're headed by, just talking more among each other? Well, that's absolutely the right thing to do. I mean, if you share information, what you're doing is you're, in effect, immunizing other people against the very same kind of attack. And in the end, we all benefit from that because it ought to be reciprocal. That's part of the thing the government has tried to encourage, and they've created some legal structures to make it easier in a bill that was passed last year. But the most important thing is for people to recognize, it's like Lincoln said, we all hang together, or Franklin, we all hang together or we hang separately. And it's important for us to work together to fight this threat. Last week, we had a distributed denial of service. Your gift out of Harvard, three cups of coffee at London School of Economics and Harvard Law, is you're the guy that walks in and all these smart guys on the internet and technology tell you what to do and you translate it for, for whoever's out there. Is the Chertoff vector of these intrusions into our digital space, is it increasing rapidly enough where we really need to begin to have a stronger dialogue with Russia and with the Eastern European states? So two separate things. I mean, the denial of service attack, uh, I, don't, I don't think it's been attributed yet. And that's sure. actually a little different than most of the hacking you're hearing about. This is not a case where somebody directly attacked and got into something and put malware in. It was rather a case where someone went around to weakly guarded uh, items that were on the internet managed to penetrate them and turn them into a giant botnet and then overwhelm the server with a lot of data coming in. That's mm -hmm. a kind of a nuisance disruption. It's not a destructive act. The issue with Russia is really this. Um, we are concerned, I think, about the possibility of us getting into a cyber conflict. It could be, uh, it's not going to be a matter of stealing credit cards, it's going to be a matter of maybe impacting critical infrastructure. And I do think it's important, whatever our issues with the Russians are, to have a dialogue within, with them so that we don't have a mistake that winds up escalating into something much more serious. Most of our audience listening to this would go, first of all, what's a cyber event, et cetera, et cetera. We go back to the basic idea of our childhood, which is, wait, could someone poison the water in wherever town we grew up in? Help us with the poison the water analogy to this modern digital security space. Well, you, have, you can have a water plant, for example, and nowadays the water plant's control system, which actually makes it operate and closes and opens the valves, is connected to the Internet. If somebody hacks into that, they could open valves that should be shut or vice versa. You can have a pipeline that monitors the flow of gasoline. And you could affect the way that monitoring takes place. Do you realize that Secretary Chertoff can bring a happy party to a complete stop? <laughs> like instant? Are you kidding me? They're going to go into our water supply and through the computers controlling the water. There was a case up in New York, I guess, a couple of years ago where uh, people hacked into a dam. I think it was Iranians were charged with this. And they tried to affect the operation of the dam. Now, it turned out it was a little dam and it wouldn't have made a difference. Mm -hmm. But obviously, there's a concern about this. So bottom line is we have two things to do. One is we've got to do a better job of protecting that infrastructure. But I agree with you. We do need to have a dialogue with the Russians. And I've actually had a conversation with some senior Russians a few months ago that whatever our other issues are, we've got plenty of other issues, we ought to have some mechanism like a hotline 
that enables us to communicate so we don't accidentally find ourselves in a situation where we precipitate a more serious conflict. So there's a red phone in Moscow, a red phone in Washington, and a red phone on Tim Cook's desk. It works. <laughs> we are, of course, in the middle of a presidential election. Right. You have weighed in uh, on that recently, right. saying that you're going to endorse Hillary Clinton. Every piece of coverage I've read about your endorsement cites your history, in quotations, uh, with, with the Clintons. Should we look at it independent of that? How did you come to the decision here to, to back Hillary Clinton? You know, I, I think we're in, in one of the most dangerous periods uh, from a security standpoint uh, that I've lived during, during my lifetime. I mean, uh, maybe the Cold War was the only thing that was more consequential. And I think the issue of temperament, experience, and judgment is maybe more important now than it's been in, in most presidential elections during my lifetime. So to me, uh, you have a very stark choice. And it's critically important to make sure that the person who is dealing with the Russians, the Chinese, problems in the Middle East, and a whole host of other issues is someone who first understands the issues and wants to understand the issues, and second, has the temperament and the steadiness to make decisions. And I think, from my standpoint, having dealt with uh, Secretary Clinton when she was a senator... Um, and having seen her in action, having spoken to her, I think she's got the temperament and experience. And I think everything that Donald Trump has done publicly since he declared yeah. for office indicates he doesn't have the yeah. temperament. So for me, this is not about, you know, someone disagrees with the way someone's organized their foundation. This is about the core responsibility of a mm -hmm. president, which is protect the country. One of our great themes here on Bloomberg Surveillance, uh, Mr. Chertoff, has been the rise of populism. You worked with Rudy Giuliani 35 years ago as a young prosecutor uh, for Mr. Giuliani. How do the Republicans heal? Mr. Giuliani's been a huge and strong and visceral supporter of Mr. Trump. He's been hugely in the news. From where you sit, how does the Republican Party move forward to a more cogent debate four years from now? You know, if you look at the history of the United States, <clears throat> we've had periods of time where populism rose or there were, were serious divisions within parties, and we've recovered from those. I think that there are some lessons learned from the message that was sent by Republican voters in terms of making sure that we raise the economy for everybody. You know, I was a Jack Kemp um, supporter and admirer, and I, I was a friend. And I think that kind of republicanism is the future of the Republican Party, which is optimistic, inclusive, raising everybody's uh, economic well-being, tough on security but not reckless on security. And I think if we get by this and we take a look at the serious issues that are embedded within what we've seen, there's a way to restructure the Does party Does that happen platform. at the state level? I mean, if you look at Kansas or Washington State, uh, with a, a, a non-Kempian republicanism, how do the Republican elite migrate them back to a more moderate tone? Actually, you know, my you, you make a great point. My experience is that it's at the state level you tend to see practical, real solutions to mm -hmm. problems because people are close to the voters. Right. And you've got to actually deliver. And I think that the um, rebuilding of the party is going to be largely driven at the state level, and you're going to have governors out there who are going to be working on solutions, and those are going to get picked up and, and taken forward. Secretary Chertoff with us. This is fascinating. Absolutely. I mean, you were involved in the Whitewater investigation yeah. again of a few years ago. He, he, it's, it's remarkable, the career path <laughs> to get to where he is today. Yeah, I'll tell you, I, you know, I will tell you there's a seminal moment that explains 
a lot of this is called September 11, 2001. David, why don't you kick it off as we talk about 15 years on this coming September of September 11th. We were talking about 9-11, the lessons you, you learned from that. Um, when you look at these two candidates, uh, you, you mentioned that it was about national security, it was about temperament. Was there a moment of clarity for you watching the, the campaign when you decided to back Trump, or was it something that you were feeling from, from the get-go? Not back Trump. Yeah. I, I signed the letter to not I'm, back I'm for, never going to back Trump. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, the, the, the uh, two things that came early on were, first of all, the build a wall to keep the Mexicans out, which was, first of all, totally impractical. And I say that as somebody who personally was involved. Yeah, this is important. During the Bush administration, right. you were greatly pushing for comprehensive I, immigration I pushed reform. for immigration reform, but I also put 600-plus miles of fencing up in the most vulnerable parts of the southern border, including some I actually personally welded. Uh, but is that are, right? Yeah. There but go. there are other areas where it doesn't make any sense. Yep. You've got a river or mountains. So that struck me as impractical and, and demagogic. But also the thing about keeping all Muslims out. Listen, I was overseas. I went to Iraq and Afghanistan. I swore in American soldiers who came from the region who had become permanent residents and went back to fight for their country. The idea you're going to keep all Muslims out is counterproductive at least and really un-American at, at, at best. So I listened to this and I thought, this is somebody who's going to alienate more people than he's going to bring into the fold. Since then, I've heard him praise Vladimir Putin and denigrate our own allies in NATO. And I think that's exactly the reverse of what we need in this day and age. Getting back to cybersecurity quickly, you brought up Vladimir Putin. You have a, a leader in Russia who is denying any involvement in the hacking that we've seen thus far. It's very easy to uh, slough that onto a, a lone wolf, say that a lone wolf has done yeah. these how, do you, how, do, how does the U.S. fight something like that? Uh, you talk about the risks of getting into a potentially dangerous situation when it comes to, to cybersecurity and hacking. What's the path forward? What's the offensive path forward here for the U.S.? Well, that's a challenging area because we don't want to overreact, but we can't ignore these things. Um, I think we may be at the point at which adding additional sanctions doesn't make a lot more sense. But it might be the case that in addition to calling out of the Russians, as the Director of National Intelligence and Secretary of Homeland Security did a week ago, maybe we need to do a little bit of releasing of embarrassing things about the Russians mm -hmm. or about the Russian leadership. You know, the Panama Papers thing apparently had a pretty strong uh, impact in terms of some of the stuff that was revealed. So again, you want to calibrate your response right. so you don't escalate, but you also can't turn your back Are we on equipped it. to do that? Is the government equipped to do that kind of information release? I, I would say that the government our government is about as skilled as any in the world in terms right. of, of getting information. One final question. This came up the other day, and I'll let the professional answer it. When somebody in New York sees three police officers with full machine gun paraphernalia outside a grocery store in the midtown Manhattan area, why are we doing that? What, what, what are they doing for our homeland security? I, I could joke around and say they're there to get donuts. <laughs> But look, I mean, sometimes there's been a view in New York that just having a show of force, like a surge, is a way of sending a message to people who might be thinking of carrying out a terrorist act that we're unpredictable and that therefore they can't be sure they can plan in a way that would allow them to carry out an attack and get away with it. So I don't know the particular instance here, but I do know they used to surge police activity under Ray Kelly. Mm -hmm. And the idea, again, was to put just a certain amount of randomness into the process as a deterrent against people carrying right. out violent acts. 
Mr. Secretary, thank you so thank much. You, yes. Michael Chertoff with the Chertoff Group and a former uh, Secretary of Homeland Security. Wonderful to see you uh, again. We'll let you go off now to the Bloomberg. Adrian, would you drag the Secretary please away <laughs> off his chair right now? We need to get him to the Bloomberg year ahead event. guest I was most anticipating. Excellent. Because if I'm anybody to the pulse of center or right in America, this is, I grew up in the land of Barbara B. Conable. Uh-huh. I was Western New York and was a Republican of another time and place. To the West in Blueberry country was the Engler household. It was a log cabin. <laughs> with a, You've seen had, it. You've they been, had a Gordie Howe jersey up on the wall. The governor, the former governor of Mass, uh, Michigan, rather. Uh, John Engler with us now. Uh, there's always eight ways to go with you, but there's only one way to go with you now, your Republican Party. I mean, help, help me here on where, you're, where where do you go from here? Well, I probably need to put the disclaimer up front, even though I was elected three times as a governor in Michigan. I'm at the roundtable now in the business roundtable, very nonpartisan fair, group. Fair, so, fair, uh, fair. But I've certainly got uh, a little bit of history and uh, a lot of elections under my belt in the past. There's no question that uh, this year started out so promising with uh, 16, 17 candidates. And uh, to quote uh, Governor Christie when he came to the roundtable back in September, he said, well, Donald Trump wasn't my first choice, uh, stating the obvious. But I, I, I think that those of us who've been around really had a sense for a long time that there's been this unrest and unhappiness out across the land with government and with Washington. Uh, there's no doubt in this campaign, though, that Trump in the early stages bottled that better than anybody else and uh, in the process took out some outstanding candidates who I think would be comfortably ahead today if they were the nominee of the party. He became the nominee and uh, I think largely unvetted in the primary process and the vetting and the campaign has been pretty brutal and you're going up against a very tough foe in the Clinton machine. When your membership gathers, how much are they talking about politics? How much is this a concern for them, for executives? Uh, well, I'll tell you what today? they're doing is they're all telling about how much they have to talk about politics when they travel anywhere in the world because the first conversation you have as a leader of a business that's headquartered here is when you go anywhere, what the heck is going on in America? And I, I think they're, they're frustrated. I'm frustrated. Our organization exists to be promoting economic growth in America. We want to see this economy booming. And here we are finishing eight years, first president since Hoover, not to have a year where GDP hits 3%. We're saying we can do a lot better, but to be better, we have to make smarter decisions. And that means government, both sides, has to work together to get the tax system fixed, to resolve the immigration fight, to think about trade and how we go forward there because 4% of the world's population, we make more than we can consume or eat, so we need to sell it to somebody. Uh, We need to think about the regulatory process. There's a whole agenda of items which, if we acted on, would be good for American workers and families. You come off the central territory of Michigan. I mean, there's the Gross Point crew and there's the Detroit crew and all that. And I think it's central Michigan hockey just as a starter. But how do business people reattach to the people of Mount Pleasant, Michigan, who have given up on Angler politics. 
Well, I, I think it's leadership. I, I actually am an optimist looking ahead, despite how brutal this campaign has been and how offensive in, in so many ways in so many directions, because I do think that the departure of Harry Reid out of the U.S. Senate means that Chuck Schumer from New York is going to be much more, uh, I think, transactional, willing to work. He's, he's interested in getting things done. He'll be the leader, whether he's a majority or minority leader, we don't know. We'll know in two weeks. But he's going to want to have a record of accomplishment. He can work, I think, with Republican leaders. I think that the next administration, uh, let's say it's Secretary Clinton, she did spend enough time in the Senate. She built relations, and she worked on building relations. President Obama only had a couple of minutes in the Senate and didn't have these relationships. And as a result, uh, there's never been the affection for him even among members of his own party. Some of them are his harshest critics. And so I think trying to make government work again, you've got such antagonism out there to the heart mm-hmm. of your question, though. I think you only build that trust back piece by piece, little by little. Mm-hmm. You've got to start to find some things you can work together on and show people that we can make decisions. I'll, I'll give you one example where I think there's a lot of opportunity to work together. We don't take care of people who are displaced today, who lose their job. Most people... Four out of five, because of technology, the digital economy, we don't have a way to retrain these people properly. We're not, in fact, communicating to their children what they're going to need to be growing up and ready to participate That's in the economy. Sure. Fixing yeah. education, yeah. fixing training, we all yeah. can work together yeah. on that. David, jump in here. We'll forever identify you as three-term Republican, uh, Governor John Engler. What does party mean to you today in light of what we've That's seen? What's your, what's your loyalty to party, and has that diminished at all? Well, I... <laughs> I, I have my personal opinions, which are sure. different than my professional role as the president of the Business Roundtable. In that role, uh, we're willing to work with anybody who will work with us on an agenda, as I said, is uh, productive in terms of seeing America grow mm-hmm. more, create more jobs, mm-hmm. employ more people, offer more opportunities. Privately, uh, you know, I, I do worry that we've got a lot of talent I think that talent needs to come forward. Long term, the, the relative youth of the emerging leadership of the Republican Party dwarfs what's over in the Democratic Party. One of the legacies of President Obama will be that he, did, he left the cupboard pretty empty. If you take Hillary Clinton, if she disappeared tomorrow, who would be the Democratic leader? Right. Tim mm-hmm. Kaine? Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure. But well, Governor, this is, this is the most important question. You grew up. With a little AM radio, I'm sure, listening to Ernie Harwell and Paul Carey. Sure and did. Detroit Tigers baseball. Paul Carey from Mount Pleasant, Michigan. I was going to say. And Len Casper is the voice of the Chicago Cubs, also from Mount Pleasant. Uh, this is a, did, did you know, know why, you, that, that, that Mount Pleasant is center tendency between Cleveland, Ohio, We're both learning and here. Chicago, <laughs> Illinois? It is the lodestone and divide when the Tigers don't win. Cubs are Indians. Well, and none other than Dick Enberg went to Central Michigan University and has been very generous to his alma mater from Armada, Michigan. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you know, I'm, we, I'm a Tigers we, we fan. We bought, they got the three-term God, politician. I'm a Tigers fan. <laughs> I, I, I do favor the American League, but I must say, I do. my heart does go out for those poor cubbies over a century of futility. So this mm-hmm. is going to be an amazing series. Uh, 
I'm, I'm stunned at how well Cleveland's performed to date. So uh, Cubs fans mm-hmm. got their work cut out for them. Well, Chuck Todd was on with us from NBC earlier, and he was talking about the grit of the Indians. I'm going to the Indians just because everybody thinks the Cubs will do it because they're so loaded. Well, I'm an American League guy, <clears> so. Uh, oh, come on, Governor, do something <laughs> in your fourth term. Get rid of the DH. John Angler with the Business Roundtable here uh, at our Bloomberg The Year Ahead event. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on iTunes, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm out on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. Who you put your trust in matters. Investors have put their trust in independent registered investment advisors to the tune of $4 trillion. Why? Learn more at findyourindependentadvisor.com.